Listen to Will Be Wild early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and racist language. Please take care while listening. Previously on Will Be Wild. When the threat materializes the next time, and it will, it probably won't materialize in a very heavily guarded Capitol building. It will probably materialize in a way that we haven't seen before, and it's concerning. We're not saying we think that when the president speaks, people do violent things. We're saying the evidence shows that it happens. My fear was that the Capitol complex would have been overrun and that we would have been looking at like a lengthy hostage takeover at the Capitol building. How close do we come to that? Pretty damn close. I think a hell of a whole lot closer than most people realize. We have an enemy control. Breaching uh, the west stairs. Breaching the west stairs. Up the stairs. We need backup. In the middle of the insurrection on January 6th, they called me. Um, they're like, Jackson Reffitt, GF Time Doc. Mr. President, are you prepared to use the military against U.S. citizens? Press, press, we're going. You really could have the makings of a coup that could literally destroy our democracy. I mean, I, I, I can envision something like that being possible, and that's what scares the hell out of me. On January 6th, we saw rioters breaking down doors and smashing windows, carrying objects around the Capitol like trophies, like that Florida guy in the Trump hat walking through the rotunda with Nancy Pelosi's lectern. But the physical damage quickly faded from view. The feces smeared on the walls, the splintered furniture, the statues and historic artwork coated with pepper spray. And there was this bit of destruction I only heard about in one place, in a book called Betrayal by Jonathan Carl. He writes about a portrait that was ripped down from the wall in the House Minority Leader's office. After the riot, it was found in a pile on the other side of the Capitol. It was a painting of Joseph Rainey, the first black member of the House of Representatives. I didn't know much about Rainey before we started working on this podcast, but it turns out he's extremely relevant to what's happening right now. A little background. Rainey was born enslaved in South Carolina in 1832. His father bought his freedom. Then he fled to Bermuda during the Civil War. He returned to South Carolina in 1866. It was the early days of Reconstruction, and Rainey helped organize the state's new black majority. He became a state senator. Then he was elected to Congress, the only black man among 243 representatives. In his portrait, the one that was torn down, he's wearing a three-piece suit, his beard styled in mutton chops. By December of 1870, when Rainey was sworn in, The House had already passed the 15th Amendment, granting black men the right to vote. But that new power came with a backlash. A wave of terror swept the South. The Ku Klux Klan emerged as a paramilitary force serving the interests of the Democratic Party. Nowhere more than in Rainey's home state of South Carolina. And so, that spring, Congress took up a new piece of legislation, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Democrats were the party of white supremacists at the time. And on the House floor, one Democrat after another stood up to say that reports of racist violence in the South were basically fake news. 
when Rainey got up to speak. He talked about the black men and women being murdered in cold blood. Crimes, he said, that had no parallel in the history of this republic in her very darkest days. Rainey received a death threat after his speech, a letter written in red telling him, your doom is sealed in blood. The KKK Act passed, and President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law on April 20, 1871. Grant's Justice Department used the act to arrest hundreds of Klansmen, sending the worst offenders to prison. But for most of the next 150 years, one significant piece of the KKK Act gathered dust. Until now. From Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, this is Will Be Wild. I'm Andrea Bernstein. And I'm Ilya Meritz. The legal reckoning over the riot at the Capitol is going to take years. More than 800 people have been charged, and there's a smaller number of civil lawsuits aimed at fact-finding. Then there's the moral reckoning, This is reflected in the stories we tell about what happened that day. Let me give you an example. Barely a year after lawmakers' lives were threatened, the Republican National Committee voted to censure the two Republicans serving on the January 6th Select Committee, saying they were taking part in the, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. If one of our major political parties says that storming the Capitol is legit, we're in real trouble, because that means it's going to be very hard to hold the planners and enablers accountable. And no accountability puts us on a path to something even worse than 1-6. So this episode, our final episode, is about three different attempts to lay down the true story of January 6th through the trial of an insurrectionist, the transformation of a hero cop, and the revival of a mostly forgotten law written 150 years ago. It's Chapter 8. Pretty damn close. There's one person in Congress in particular that I wanted to talk to about the effort to lay down the true story of January 6th. Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi. I first met him back in June 2021. Well, well, well. Hello. We talked at his office in D.C. Blue walls, plaques, grip and grin photos, and a full-length bearskin hanging on the wall from a bear he shot himself. Thompson is unassuming, but powerful. He got his start in politics in the late 1960s in the wake of the Voting Rights Act. He served as mayor of his hometown before being elected to Congress in 1993. I would not be an elected official had it not been for the Voting Rights Act that allowed people of color to even register to vote without being intimidated. Today, he's the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. He's been one of the leading voices warning about the rise in domestic terrorism. You might remember him from back in episode three, reading out the list of those 50 empty leadership jobs at DHS. Put simply, since taking office, President Trump has decimated the leadership ranks of his own Department of Homeland Security. On January 6, Thompson got to the Capitol around 1 o'clock. He made his way up to the House chamber for the vote to certify the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Because of COVID, the House members were spread out. Thompson's seat was up in the gallery. 
That's where, in normal times, the press and the public can go observe the proceedings. Those of us in the gallery did not have a real view of what was taking place outside. Outside, rioters are in a pitched battle with police. Just before 2 p.m., they break through a window of the Capitol and begin streaming inside. 501, the Capitol has been breached. Protesters have entered the building. The House leadership is ushered out by security, but most of the members, including Thompson, are left in the chamber. A kind of confused panic overtakes the room. We're hearing the beating on the doors and all that, but we're still not quite sure what's going on. Members of Congress are diving behind the seats up in the gallery. People are yelling out orders. Everybody stay down! Get down! People said, put your gas mask on. So you want to know, where the gas mask? Rioters are now right outside. Inside the chamber, people shove a desk against the door. Capitol Police draw their guns. And people were told, get on the floor, take your congressional pen off, because if they break in, if they see the pen, they're going to do harm to you. Yeah. The fuck? Take your pens off. Pens off. They hear a gunshot. Thompson doesn't know it then, but it's a Capitol Police officer shooting a rioter, Ashley Babbitt, who's trying to get into a hallway where members of Congress are fleeing from the House chamber. Finally, Thompson's escorted out. And when they led us out the gallery, you saw all the protesters spread eagle on the floor. That's when you knew how close they had come. A few days later, Thompson was back at work, and he couldn't stop thinking how it could have been a heck of a lot worse. He shuddered to think how many more rioters might have gotten in, how many more lives might have been lost. He thought, there are people responsible for this, and Donald Trump is one of them. People came to town at the president's invitation. So that invitation said, come to Washington, it's going to be wild. And he thought, we can't let Trump walk away from this like nothing happened. This is when Thompson spoke to Derek Johnson, the president and CEO of the NAACP. He said, you ain't believe this. I said, what? I said, that is an act commonly referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act, but it's Civil Rights Act of 1871 that said, in essence, it's against the law to impede Congress from doing its constitutional duties. I said, what? The law that Joseph Rainey helped push through 150 years earlier. It was eerily on point for this moment. It says you can be held liable if you conspire to, quote, molest, interrupt, hinder, or impede federal officials in the discharge of their duties. And you can be required to pay monetary damages if you conspire using, quote, force, intimidation, or threat to keep anyone from holding office. And so we looked at the certification process and said, bam, all we were doing was following the law. And all they were doing was trying to prevent us from doing our job. So in February of 2021, 
Thompson decided not to wait for the Justice Department or anyone else to act. He used this old law to force accountability, suing Donald Trump, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers for conspiring to block the certification. The defendants have denied wrongdoing, but a federal judge concluded the plaintiffs had established a plausible conspiracy and said the suit can proceed. Trump is appealing. That spring, some of Thompson's colleagues started to hedge, to question what really happened on January 6th. If it was an insurrection, it was the worst example of an insurrection in the history of mankind. Thompson did not want history to be rewritten. I'm not going to argue with the previous speaker. I just said, read the bill. The world saw what happened on January 6th. In June, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi created a select committee. She named Benny Thompson the chair. When Thompson took on that role, he removed himself from the lawsuit. Ten representatives took it up in his place. The case still bears his name. A quorum being present, the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States. The first select committee hearing was on July 27, 2021. And while our institutions endured, and while Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States, a peaceful transfer of power didn't happen this year. It did not happen. Let that sink in. Think about it. By this day, the truth of the insurrection, the literal facts of the attack, which had been broadcast live on television and recorded on a zillion cell phones and witnessed by thousands of people firsthand, was already coming under attack. One Republican in Congress suggested the storming of the Capitol could be seen as a normal tourist visit. The committee called four police officers to testify about what they'd experienced that day. Officer Mike Fanone was among them. So was a Capitol Police officer named Harry Dunn. At six foot seven inches, he towered above the others. On January 6th, he'd been posted on the east side of the Capitol, away from most of the mob. When reports of the violence started to stream across his police radio, he rushed from his post to stand guard at a set of stairs below the rotunda. More and more insurrectionists were pouring into the area by the speaker's lobby near the rotunda, and some wearing MAGA hats and shirts that said Trump 2020. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response they yelled, no man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. As he read his testimony, Dunn looked down at his prepared text. But when he got to this part, he looked up at the committee members. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded, well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger 
while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a nigger to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been cr- confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, put your gun down and we'll show you what kind of nigger you really are. Since that first hearing, the committee's tried to put together not just a definitive story of what happened on that day, but a record of who was involved in the planning of it, who in government knew about it in advance, and what specifically Donald Trump's role might have been. As of May 2022, it had interviewed over 1,000 witnesses and reviewed over 125,000 documents. It fought Donald Trump all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to get White House records and won. And while the select committee can't bring a criminal case, their inquiries have turned up evidence of criminal behavior by Trump himself. In one case, a federal judge ruling that Trump had to turn over documents requested by the committee wrote in his conclusion, The court finds that it is more likely than not that President Trump dishonestly conspired to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021 the committee is expected to issue a final report by the end of 2022. History has a way of repeating itself, and sometimes you have to reaffirm things that happen. And I think it also says that even the President of the United States is not above the law. And um, we're about to find out. (laughs) We are absolutely about to find out. In March, while the House Select Committee was interviewing witnesses, just a few blocks away, a different sort of reckoning began in a federal courthouse. Guy Reffitt became the very first accused rioter to be tried by a jury. For the first time in over a year, the members of the Reffitt family were in the same place, if not exactly together. Guy sat at the defense table next to his court-appointed lawyer. Because of COVID, there was just one seat reserved for a family member, which his wife Nicole took for most of the trial. During jury selection, I could see her scratching the back of her head. She told me that's what she does when she gets nervous. Their daughter Sarah was with her boyfriend and some relatives in the overflow room two floors down. Their son Jackson was nowhere to be seen. But he had to be close because he was on the witness list. I was in the ground floor media room where reporters sat around staring at their laptops or at the closed circuit TV in the corner. On the morning of March 2nd, an assistant U.S. attorney stepped up to a lectern and greeted the jury. He ran them through the facts. How Guy drove two days from Texas to D.C. How he climbed the steps of the Capitol in full battle rattle. Helmet, vest, gun. How police hit him with pepper balls and impact projectiles. But it was pepper spray in the face that finally stopped him. How when Guy got home to Texas, he told his children, traitors get shot. The prosecution said Guy himself had claimed he was one of the first ones up the Capitol steps, that he'd lit the match that started the fire. Then they spelled out the five counts against Guy and urged the jurors, as prosecutors like to say, to reach the only possible verdict. Guilty. 
When Guy's defense lawyer, William Welch, stood up, he was a lot less polished. It was often difficult to hear. He opened by saying his client never assaulted anyone, that Guy's altercation with police lasted just five minutes. He didn't go inside the Capitol, didn't break anything or take anything. Guy Reffitt does brag, Welch said. He rants, he uses a lot of hyperbole, and that upsets people. Welch asked the jurors to avoid a rush to judgment. Then he thanked them and took a seat. He'd spoken for about three minutes. The prosecutor had taken 30. In the press room, I heard snorts, like, is this guy for real? I didn't see Jackson until the next afternoon when he was called to testify. Seated in the witness box, he looked calm, almost serene. As he answered the prosecutor's questions, his dark, wavy hair fell thickly over his shoulders. Jackson wore a suit jacket and spoke so softly the judge kept having to ask him to raise his voice. For the first 20 minutes or so, he was chewing gum. The prosecutor ran Jackson through a thumbnail version of his life. Texas, Malaysia, his frequent clashes with his dad, his tip to the FBI, and then asked him to look at a photo. It was taken by the FBI on the morning they came to arrest Guy, sort of still life of Guy's bedside table. In the picture, there are two empty bottles of Corona, an ashtray, a hand towel, eyeglasses, and in the middle of it all, a shiny black pistol. That's what the prosecution was focused on. Guy's lawyer had tried to introduce doubts that Guy had the gun with him on January 6th. The prosecution used the photo to suggest otherwise. When questioned, Jackson told the jury that Guy had his gun with him pretty much all the time. If it wasn't at his bedside, it was usually on his hip. Later, I downloaded the image from the exhibits file to look at it more closely. There was an old photograph beneath the gun, a picture of the Refit kids taken when they were young. You can see the face of a child, maybe five years old, through the trigger guard. That's Jackson. There's Sarah. It was like Guy's entire emotional life was laid out on his bedside table. The prosecutor said Guy lit the match that started the fire on January 6th. But I see it differently. If anything, he was a fuse in search of a flame. And the evidence, the trail of text messages presented at trial, show that he found a spark in Trump's call to come to Washington. Five days after Jackson testified, the jury found Guy Reffitt guilty of all five counts, including carrying a gun on federal property and witness intimidation. Outside the courthouse, Nicole Reffitt stood in front of a group of reporters and thanked the jury and Guy's attorney, even the prosecution, and the people of D.C. They have all been so humble and made our time here much easier, and I just want to thank everybody. Then she turned defiant. What would you tell the other people who are still to stand trial in these cases after watching a guilty verdict? Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. The reason that we have all guilty verdicts is they are making a point out of Guy, and that is to intimidate the other members of the One Sixers. And we will all fight together. I am so upset that she is uh, advocating for no one to take a plea. Using my family and my father as an example... I caught up with Jackson by video chat the following week. Looking at what's happened, he's facing 60 years. 
and everyone around him has seemingly um, turned against him. Uh, and I don't want, like, I don't know why any family would want another family to go through what my family went through. Jackson said that once he got going, testifying was easy because all he had to do was tell the truth. Seeing his dad, on the other hand, was really hard. Probably the hardest moment was seeing him just cry. And he had these big glasses on that he clearly had never owned or the prison had given to him that barely like, fit his face. And he didn't look good in them. And they were just like fogging up. And they were, he was, when he was crying, it was um, really hard to watch. When did he cry? I, I wasn't able to see it. but I could actually barely see him through the whole trial. Um, as soon as I walked in. Oh, wow. Ah, shit. That is, uh, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is why I need therapy. Is that a new thing, therapy? Yes, very brand new. What made you decide to do it? Uh, a lot of people just telling me to, and then I just figured it would be best because I usually subdue all my emotions and not really care. You know your mom is, like, really big on therapy now. Oh, yeah, she better be. I would hope so. I told Jackson what Nicole told me months earlier— that she wants all the refits to do individual therapy and family therapy, too. That's how they're going to become one family again, she said. That sounds awesome. That sounds beautiful. I will totally do that. But we'll see. After the verdict, Nicole and Sarah went to care for a sick relative and stopped doing interviews for a while. But I heard from another refit, Guy, answered my emails. He was in the Patriot Wing of the D.C. jail, waiting to be sentenced. He told me he'd been playing Magic the Gathering with Jessica Watkins. Friendships have been forged that can never be broken, Guy wrote. Jessica introduced me to a game I never knew existed. Despite being a trans woman, Jessica was held in the same wing as the men for over a year. She was moved to a women's unit in April. She walked out to an honorary star-spangled banner, Guy told me. I'm happy for her to be free of the male dialogue. Guy and Jessica are just two of more than 800 people charged with rioting at the Capitol so far. It'll take years for all these defendants to move through the justice system. Some say they were following orders from the president. Some have disavowed their allegiance to Trump and claim they were influenced by disinformation. As for Guy, he insists he went to the Capitol to save the country for his kids and grandkids. He wrote me, I actually had no real perception of what would come of that day. It's the kind of thing from movies, not real life. Yet there it was, the moment in time when fantasy slammed into reality like a car wreck. Time moved in a series of frames. It was weird to read those lines, honestly, because they were so strangely poetic. And also because part of me understands that feeling of time slowing down. Guy's the one refit I really didn't expect to relate to. But I do, a little bit. It feels like there is some kind of self-examination happening for Guy. Mostly, though, his messages tell me this. His experience in jail has hardened his feeling that the American government is a rigged and malicious system. Early in his incarceration, he had a seizure because he couldn't get medication. He says he spent over 100 days in solitary, and yes, he's counting. Those real personal grievances become evidence of a greater conspiracy. 
Guy says he'll continue to fight his conviction. Before the trial, I had the idea that being confronted with all the evidence of what Guy did on January 6th might shift things inside the Reffitt family, make Nicole see that Jackson was right about his dad. When I talked to Nicole this fall, she seemed like she might be ready to declare her independence from Guy and his version of events. But you heard what she said outside the courthouse. It doesn't seem to have gone that way. Not yet. Maybe not ever. We'll be right back. The idea that a crisis might snap us out of some delusion, set us on a clearer course, a lot of people felt that right after January 6. Like, holy shit, we just skidded up to the edge of a cliff. Good thing we caught ourselves. Now let's take a breath and slowly back away. Take a look at how we got here. What happened inside the government? Put some guardrails in place so we never come that close again. When I first met Officer Mike Fanone back in June of 2021, that was the vibe I got from him. Hope that something good could come from this, and that maybe he was the perfect guy to get people to face the truth. A former Trump voter, a gun owner, and a hunter with tattoos on his neck, who worked as a vice cop and knew how to gain people's confidence. But by the time I met him again in March of 2022, that sense that we might write things as a country felt misplaced. The disinformation machine was churning stronger than ever. Nearly one in five Americans believe the government, media, and financial worlds are run by Satan-worshipping pedophiles. On that sleeting day in March, Mike Fanone looked gaunt. You could see it in his face and eyes, the exhaustion from carrying the weight of what happened that day for so long, battle-weary from an endless fight that he feels he can't step away from. It's now, like, part of my obligation. And how do you not take it personally? As, like, the most significantly injured person that day, with the exception of Brian Sicknick, who's dead, How do I not take it personally? I've come to represent January 6th. So anytime somebody comes sideways out of their mouth about, you know, January 6th, I see it as a personal affront. You can't help but act like there must be some way to move the conversation to a real place beyond knee-jerk anger and hatred. But every time he tries to do that, to say something real, it just gets used to stir up even more anger and hatred. And whatever that says about the state of our country, it also makes it impossible for Mike Fanone to move on and find peace. Every time I feel like I've surpassed one obstacle, gotten myself closer and closer to real resolution, some asshole lawmaker or some jerk-off says something stupid on television and just reopens those wounds. And I feel now compelled to respond, whether that's helpful for me personally, probably not. And so Fanon is trapped in the same place the Reffitts are trapped. And, you know, America is trapped, which is that it's impossible to have any kind of reconciliation if there's no shared truth. Fanon talks about the need for a January 6th memorial, like the 9-11 memorial 
something to publicly acknowledge that this thing happened. I'm just trying to get people to pay attention to the damage and destruction that that cultural war is playing on all of us. Because you think that'll have some effect in the world? I mean, I'm a girl dad. I don't want to turn this over to my children. I want them to have, you know, a better life than I did. And I want them to grow up in a country where they feel love and compassion and empathy as the most resounding feelings. For Michael Fanon, the battle for democracy is not a metaphor. It was his body absorbing the literal force of right-wing extremism, beating down the door of our democratic institutions. We've been here before. One side saying there's a crisis we can't look away from, the other denying it exists. And we've seen the costs of that denial. The 1876 presidential election brought violence, court battles, rival slates of electors sent to Washington, talk of civil war. Hayes-Tilden election, we mentioned last episode, the one where the outcome in three states was disputed, including in South Carolina. Representative Joseph Rainey, the one from the portrait, and a delegation from South Carolina visited Hayes before he was sworn in. They begged him to reconsider withdrawing troops from the South. Hayes refused. Within two months of taking office, Hayes ordered federal troops protecting Southern state houses to leave. White supremacists quickly took over across the South. The next time Rainey was up for election, a former Confederate soldier ran against him and won, even though the district was majority black. The number of black representatives in Congress shriveled to zero. It took nearly a century after Rainey was forced out for the numbers to return to what they were just after the Civil War. Rainey's story might have been lost to history if it weren't for the work of one woman. I'm Lorna Rainey, the great-granddaughter of Joseph Hain Rainey. I met Lorna Rainey last summer. She's been working on a documentary film about her great-grandfather called Slave in the House. She's collected a trove of documents about Rainey. It's been her way of combating what happened after Reconstruction. And the state sanctioned forgetting in the name of unity. And here now we are, again, doing the same thing and having to revisit this ugliness all over again because it was accepted for the sake of the democracy a long time ago or for the sake of unity. But you can't be unified if people are not thinking along the same path and wanting to achieve the same goal. She says, just look at how we remember the Civil War. The Confederates had no problem erecting statues and tributes to people who were traitors to the government. So I think if you look at that, it's not a far leap to get to where we are now. It seems like we're still fighting the same battles that we should have won a long time ago. It doesn't have to go that way this time. We still have the chance to memorialize what actually happened and what Trump did to lay down a real and complete record. And there are people who are fighting to make sure that we do, many of whom we've met in the podcast. For me, that means there's still hope.
I'm having a hard time with hope. Our country's in a very bad place. And most of the time, I think that's what you should take away from this podcast. And then I think about that family down in Texas, the Reffits. I didn't know when I first flew to Dallas how much they would captivate me. I think it might be in the way they see each other as a family and don't look away. Day after day, Nicole sat in the courtroom, absorbing the evidence of what her husband did. And from the witness box, Jackson was able to see his dad's hurt. Just as we were finishing this show, Nicole sent me a picture from Easter. It's her, Peyton and Sarah, and Jackson, all together. I don't know if they'll be able to repair what's been broken, if they'll figure out how, but I hope they can. Will Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Ilya Meritz, and Andrea Bernstein. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer reporters are Christine Driscoll and Alice Wilder. Our associate producer is Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Legal review also provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown and Sarah Schwarzman at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Jenna Weiss Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers of Pineapple Street, with support on Will Be Wild from Maddie Sprung Kaiser. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candice Manriquez Wren, senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Thanks this episode to Professor Bobby Donaldson, Christopher Frears, Clint Smith, Adam Serwer, Douglas Edgerton, Eric Foner, Joan Baez, Joseph Sellers, Allison Deitch, Jeanette McCarthy-Wallace, Linda Villarosa, Jim O'Grady, Mary Jacoby, Andrea Lewis, and Officer Harry Dunn. Also, Tom Dreisbeck, Carrie Johnson, Jordan Fisher, Joaquin Sapien, and Josh Levine. And a big thank you for their help on this series to David Rode, Micah Lowinger, Luke Mogelson, Aram Rostin, Jason Leopold, A.C. Thompson, Marissa Lang, Representative Jamie Raskin, Simon Rodberg, Allison McAdam, Quinta Jurassic, Ryan Goodman, Justin Hendricks, Olivia Nuzzi, Caitlin Kim, and Leanne Caldwell. And to Brian Hale, Mark Ramundi, Evan Douglas, Filippos Malaku-Bello, Brandon Hansel, Nick Schwellenbach, Adam Sigorin, Noah Bookbinder, Jordan Leibowitz, John Scott Railton, Mary McCord, Bill Braniff, Oren Siegel, Mike German, Corey Shockey, Seamus Hughes, Lauren Harper, Megan Nadolsky and Goat Rodeo, and Martin Ostermule. Thanks also to Aaron Kelly, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Beyondria July, Sophie Bridges, Jake Williams, and Kelly Drake.